Thank you, Kyle and team and church. Beloved, even as we live our lives from uh, things that may seem uh, meaningless as we meander through life to uh, world-changing events, uh, world wars, countries disintegrating, things of that nature, we understand as believers that these are specks of dust on the great cosmic drama that is unfolding in God's creation. As Bunyan put, the battle for Mansoul. At the center of this great cosmic drama is the incarnation, the eternal God, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, taking on a vessel of weakness. Now, having said that, very often people, we may think of the incarnation, I am guilty of this at times myself, mostly in the context of the birth. And to be sure, the incarnation includes the birth, but it is far, far more than merely the birth, the virgin-born birth of Lord Jesus. It includes his temptation. It includes his crucifixion, his ascension, his coronation at the right hand of the Father. In the great book of Hebrews, the author, pastor, preacher, stretches our minds and encourages our Heart. And he does this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, by focusing on the incarnation, by reminding us that the Son became a man to let us out. He didn't stand on a cloud and yell at us. He came down and was born as a baby, taking on a vessel of weakness. In verses 11 through 18, the author defends the incarnation and he applies the incarnation in its entirety in its beauty, in its wonder, in its glory, in its full meaning to us eternally and to us even this next week as we encounter that. Beloved, hear the word of God. Our passage this morning is verses 11 through 18, but I'll begin reading in verse 10. Hebrews 2 and verse 10, the author writes, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, this is an incredibly deep, rich section of Scripture. As I approached this, I thought, well, I could break this out into 
you know, five or six sermons easily. But what I want to do here is make sure that we just take in the breadth and the, as much of the depth as we can in one message because there is so much that ties together. And many of these topics uh, I've preached, we've had preached here from the pulpit in different books. Uh, the propitiation, for example, that was covered uh, when we went through First John. So that is what we will do here today is take this entire rich theological section of Scripture, the last part of Hebrews chapter 2. And beloved, what we see here in verses 11 through 18 is three roles of the Son, three roles of Lord Jesus. He is our brother. He is our deliverer, and he is our sympathizer. And the intent that the author has for his original audience, the intent that God has for you and for me is we need to remember that we need a Savior who will deal and can deal, is able to deal with the guilt of sin, with the power of death, and even the trials that we will face even this week. We need a Savior who in a word will save the sinful, deliver the dying, and help the hurting. Brother and sister in Christ, even as we remember how chapter 2 began in the middle of this great section on Christ's superiority to the angels. In chapter 2, verse 1, the author described to us the deadly danger of drift. And as brothers and sisters, as children of God, every moment, every decision of life we do, we are either being drawn more to him or we are drifting away from him. We are either disciplining ourselves for godliness or we're making the wrong decisions. Well, let's first look at the first role that he gives for us in verses 11 through 13, namely, that the son who was extolled and exalted in chapter 1 is our brother. Because again, we need a savior who is able to save the sinful. And what he's doing here is he's setting against the backdrop of the superiority of the son to the angels. What he's setting and what he's laying before us is his equality with man. The common humanity that the son shares with us, that we share with him. A shared solidarity that the Lord Jesus has with his people. Verse 11, he says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. The little word for there tells us that he's going to give reason. He's going to give a foundation. He's going to give strength and oomph to what he had communicated even before. And he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, those who are set apart as sacred, those who are made holy, those who are consecrated, those who are purified, is what he's talking about here, are purified by the purifier. We who are sanctified are sanctified by the sanctifier. We, of course, understand from other parts of Scripture the Holy Spirit's role in our sanctification. And this is a great reminder that we don't want to, in our minds, set artificial boundaries between the ministry and role of the different members of the Trinity. So certainly the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. The indwelling Holy Spirit sanctifies us. But here, the Son is the sanctifier. And this is a common theme within Hebrews. By virtue of the Hebrew background of the original audience and by virtue of the Christian life that the Hellenistic Jewish believers live and that you and I live together, the author focuses on sanctification throughout the whole book. For example, chapter 10, verse 14, you see the words there, by one offering he has perfected 
for all time those who are sanctified. Or 13 verse 12, Jesus also, so that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, he suffered outside the gate. So this sanctification, there's the positional sanctification that at the point of your conversion, at the point of your pardon, God set you apart as his own, adopted you into his family. So you are an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. And there's the process of ongoing sanctification where we are transformed from glory to glory as we live our lives in obedience to Christ. Now, to remind ourselves of even what we have seen here in Hebrews, remember back in verse 7, the application the author gives of Psalm 8 is talking about the glory and the dignity and the rule of man, of lowercase man, of you and me, from Adam through David, of the original intent of God, of the glory and dignity, of how man is crowned with glory and honor in verse 7. But then in verse 9, the man, the capital man, Jesus Christ in his humanity is crowned with glory and honor. Well, beloved, when we think of glory and we think of sanctification, sanctification is glory begun and glory or glorification is sanctification completed. These all tie together. That's how he flows from the beautiful truths that we saw previously in verses 5 through 10 to what we have here before us now. But he continues in verse 11. He gives another four. For which reason, and this is amazing, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed. The son is not ashamed. If you are in Christ... Despite your frailty, despite my frailty, despite the residual sin, despite the fact that sometimes we fall far short of mortifying the deeds of the flesh, of putting the deeds of the flesh to death. Many times we fall far short of demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, yet the Son is not ashamed to call you his brother, to call you his sister. God the Father is also not ashamed. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And what should be the result? What is the result for the child of God when faced with the beautiful reality that the son is not ashamed to, be, to call you his brother and sister and that the father is not ashamed to call you his children? Well, we can think of one example, Paul. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 1, verse 16? He said, I am not what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the result of the Son and God the Father not being ashamed of you and me should be that we are not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed to be called Christians. We are not ashamed to say that we are born again. We are forgiven of our sins and that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And to make sure we are level set well here, we want to ensure we have this straight. Who exactly has a right to be ashamed of whom? God, the answer, the straightforward answer is God alone is the one that could have a right to be ashamed of us. We, of course, have no right, no prerogative, no privilege whatsoever to even think along those lines. Yet, he is not ashamed to call them, to call you, to call us brethren. 
It reminds us that there are ties higher than flesh and blood. In no way does this undermine the family of God. The true family for the Christian is not his or her biological family. It is his or her spiritual family. And in no way does this undermine the biological family. No, I mean, in fact, it strengthens it, it supplements, it makes it better, it makes it more wonderful. And we can think of Jesus, we can remember the epic day in the ministry of Jesus when he healed the paralytic whose friends had dug a hole in the roof and let him down. And a tremendous time of teaching, it was the same epic day when the nation of Israel committed the unpardonable sin by attributing the miraculous powers of Jesus to Beelzebul. And you may remember that when Jesus was inside the house that was just crowded and overflowing with people, some people came and said, hey, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, your family is outside. And Jesus' reply, Mark verse, chapter 3, verse 33, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who are sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. He turns the attention away from the biological family to the true ultimate family, the spiritual family. And again, of course, Jesus Christ did not in any way shirk away from the responsibility he had towards his biological family. One of the words he uttered from the cross was a word of care and concern for his mother Mary, giving instruction to John to take care of her. Now, back here in Hebrews 2, we saw last week in verses 5 through 10 that man is neither inherently nor ultimately inferior to angels. Jesus, for example, never calls angels his brethren, his brothers, but he calls man. So man, brethren, yes, angels, no. So this is another indication of our ultimate, in God's grace and mercy, and in an absolutely non-prideful way, our ultimate superiority to angels in the economy of God And, beloved, mark this. Jesus never called his people brethren until the cross. Disciples, yes. Friends, yes. Sheep, yes. But brethren, brothers and sisters, never before the cross. And in fact, what's the first thing, or one of the very first things Jesus said after his resurrection? Mary, godly Mary, was there at the cross and he said to her in John 20, verse 17, go to my what? He didn't say go to my disciples. He didn't say go to my sheep, go to my friends. He said go to my brethren. So again, before the cross, he never called us brethren. But after the cross, he does. Why? Because the cross was necessary for us to become brothers and sisters. Our brotherhood begins in the resurrection. We continue on in verse 12. He says, saying, I will proclaim it. Here is where the author goes to one more Old Testament quote. What we'll see here in verses 11 through 13, he gives three quotations. He quotes Psalm 22, and then he quotes two parallel verses from Isaiah 18. But the way the author brings it out is he sets them apart as three separate quotes. Quotes. So, saying, again, present tense, God is speaking right now to them. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And he's quoting here Psalm 22, verse 22. As we looked at at the beginning of our public reading of Scripture, one of the most famous, well-known messianic 
Psalms, where in Psalm 22, verse 1, that was where Jesus uttered his and cried out his cry, his word of anguish from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabach thani. And that was part of the agony of Christ. So the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 is this tremendous lament from David, which applies to Jesus. But in verse 22 through the end in verse 31, there's a massive turn even in that great psalm towards thanksgiving and praise. And that's precisely what he is bringing out here. And the way the author of Hebrews applies this here is this is the son leading his brethren, his brothers and sisters, leading his children, leading his people in worship and praise. So we, especially as shepherds, we understand that Jesus is the chief shepherd. But not only is Jesus the chief shepherd, he's the prime worship leader. He is the prime, primary, chief worship leader as well. And that is exactly what is taking place here. That is what we do when we gather together as a local body, as a foretaste of the glory and wonders of heaven, being crowned with glory and honor, even in fulfillment of the original intent from chapter 2, verse 7. And that will be realized forever and ever in heaven. And he says, and again, verse 13, and again moves to the second quote, I will put my trust in him. And this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. And it's interesting, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 are tied together in thought. And what the author, pastor, preacher does here is he brings them together. In both cases, both Psalm 8, if you were here last week, and Isaiah 8, the original intent from the human authors, from David and from Isaiah, was describing man, lowercase man. Psalm 8, the original intent of God for man. And Isaiah chapter 8, he was referring to himself. Even when he says, I will put my trust in him. The idea, the situation was, if you read in Isaiah 8, was that the prophet Isaiah was rejected by those to whom he came. And in the same way, so also was the son rejected by those to whom he came. And Isaiah the prophet maintained his trust in God and maintained his faith in God that there would be an ultimate future vindication of him against the false and wrong accusations. So also, Jesus Christ, the man in his humanity, trusted God his Father and waited for the ultimate vindication that would come to him. That's how the author takes that prophecy from Isaiah and applies it to the man Jesus. And then we move to the third quote in the latter part of verse 13 here in Hebrews 2. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Uh, so again, we just move from the original text in Isaiah, from Isaiah 8, 17 to Isaiah 8, verse 18. But the way the author brings it out here is he says, and again, so it's the third quote. Again, from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. And the original context with the man, lowercase man, Isaiah, was he was looking towards the, his two sons. He had two sons with, very, with names with very rich meaning. His two sons were a representation to the prophet Isaiah of the future remnant of the faithful remnant and the future of Israel, that even while he is waiting for God's vindication of him and his ministry, more to the point, he knows that despite the trials and tribulations and travails and seeming losses of battle for God's 
promise to the nation of Israel that there will be a future vindication, not just of himself, but of God's good promise even to the nation of Israel. And his two sons are representative of that. But the author here applies it to the man, Jesus Christ. And by way of reminder, what's the next chapter after Isaiah 8? Chapter 9. And there is the great messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He'll be born to a virgin we saw back in Isaiah chapter chapter 7. So, All of this ties in, even as Isaiah was applying to himself, even in the original writing, it's pointing ultimately always towards Christ. And beloved, here in Hebrews 2, verses 11 through 13, there is tremendous solidarity. This is Christ as our brother. He says, brethren, three times in verses 11 through 13. He says, children, twice. He says, the people once. This is very personal. This is very familial, family-oriented, around the family of God, a common humanity and a shared solidarity. I like the way Alistair Begg talked about this. He said, imagine Jesus coming down. He talked about Jesus coming down. Imagine him coming down to Parkside, the church outside of Cleveland. For us, imagine Jesus coming down to Santan Bible Church, going from person to person saying, come here, come here, come here. Then the son turning to the father and saying, Father, look at the children whom you have given me. And then I'll quote him. He's talking about Parkside. Of course, this wouldn't be true of Santan Bible Church, but this is what he said. What a motley, Alistair Begg said, what a motley bunch we are, stumbling, bumbling, faltering, Sinning, carping, criticizing, griping, singing, not singing, liking the music, not liking the music. Just a snapshot that probably gives a little insight into. Pastors, sometimes you, you kind of let eke out different things that are going on. But anyway, you get the point. Not liking the music. Bunch of hoodlums. And he says, Beg says, the son says, here I am and the children God has given me. Beloved, What a great reminder to us. And again, you've heard me say so many times, I don't deserve this church, the churches of people. I love this church, completely undeserved this church. But what a great reminder to us that despite our frailties, despite our disappointments with one another, this is Christ's perspective towards us. So how much more should we be motivated and encouraged encouraged to excel yet more in our love of one another and our exercise of all the one another's of scripture. So, he is our brother. The second role that we see here as we move on to verses 14 through 16 is he is our deliverer. Because not only do we need a savior who can save the sinful, we need a savior who can deliver the dying. And beloved, we know from human experience And we know even more importantly from the word of God that where there's sin, death is inevitable. And in order to save the human race of the first Adam, the son became the last Adam. The son came to die, to remove the curse so that in part, man, you and I, could regain the dignity and honor of Psalm 8, the Psalm 8 dignity and dominion. Beloved, in a word, Jesus delivers us out of the bondage of dread into the freedom of the supernatural joy of the Lord, despite our situation, despite our circumstances. That's why the author says, look at verse 14. Since then, 
The children share in flesh and blood. Koinoneo, koinonia, fellowship. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And the, the grammar, the Greek grammar here basically describes our sharing in flesh and blood is just an ongoing activity, but him partaking, the son partaking of the same as a historical event, namely he's pointing towards, even with the grammar, the incarnation. And the point is, this is, remember, Jesus, the son in chapter 1, is God's final word. And this message is not a message sent from some distant planet, but it is a message delivered by one who partook of blood and flesh. That's the original order in the Greek. Uh, what if God became one of us is the question. Well, John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, back here in Hebrews 2, we can ask the question, how does the Son deliver us from death? How does he deliver us from dying? And it's not in the immediate context here. It's not by his life. It's not by his example. It's not by his teaching. It's not by his Miracles. Now, to be sure, all of these are important elements. Of course, his teaching is massively important for us to be delivered from death. But that's not the point that he's bringing out here. The point the author brings out is he delivers us from death by his death. In fact, we see the word death three times in verses 14 and 15. This is the way the great Puritan Owen said. This is right here, the death of death in the death of Christ. Death, beloved, you see, is the great and inexorable destroyer. And he who has death in his control holds the power of destruction. And for a time, this created spirit being the devil, Satan, has that in his power. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, set the stage of this, bringing out the idea of what things looked like from the human perspective at the death of Christ. This is what Bruce wrote. If ever a course was lost, it was his. If ever the powers of evil were victorious, it was then. And yet, within a generation, his followers were exultingly proclaiming the crucified Jesus to be the conqueror of death and asserting, like our author here, that by dying he had reduced the erstwhile lord of death, the devil, to impotence. The keys of death and Hades were henceforth held firmly in Jesus' powerful hand. For he, in the language of his own parable, had invaded the strong man's fortress, disarmed him, bound him fast, and robbed him of his spoil. End quote. Beloved, the point here is that Jesus, in his death, vanquished two principal enemies. He vanquished the devil and he vanquished death. That's why it says in the middle of verse 14, that, hina, so that, purpose statement, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, diabolos, the slander or accuser. The devil is a liar. He's an accuser, a deceiver, and a destroyer. He would give us dirt for diamonds and for a time, death is the dark reality of his tyranny. But 
even in this time, even as he is described in 1 John 5, 19 as the God of this world, God is still supreme in his sovereignty. Death is not a sphere from which broken loose out of God's command. I like what Stephen Charnock said. He said, the devil means to be a destroyer, but for the believer, God turns him, the devil, into a polisher. And I can think of two distinct times in my life where I sure felt a lot of polishing going on. Beloved, the death is even now when we look at the news and see the direction of the world seemingly in control. He is not. He is on a leash. And again, for the believer, he who means to be a destroyer, God turns into a polisher, into even part of your sanctification, of my sanctification. And mark this. Again, from chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 18, is the son's superiority to the angels. Let us not forget that Satan, the devil, is a spirit being. He's an angelic creature. He's finite in power and obviously, ultimately futile in his rebellion. And beloved, in the book of Hebrews, salvation is far more than just release from sin. It is right here, complete deliverance from the bondage of the devil, from even the fear of death. And the power the devil presently wields is the power by which, in the perfect plan and economy of God, is the power by which he is destroyed. Because, beloved, creation and destruction and salvation from destruction is absolutely in the realm of God, belongs absolutely to God alone. That's why he says that the death of Christ rendered powerless the devil. Total destruction, render powerless. That describes a total destruction by a superior force of an inferior force. So again, even in the context of Christ's superiority to angels, which pretty much all the way through this has been his superiority to holy angels, this is the greater, in some sense, superiority to this spirit being of Satan, this vastly, infinitely inferior force. John wrote, 1 John 3, verse 8, the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose so that he might destroy the works of <clears throat> excuse me the works of the devil and beloved even the same way we sang the beautiful song the very first song i saw the light in the same way light vanquishes and dispels darkness so also the sun vanquishes and dispels the devil that's why the apostle paul wrote to us god wrote to us through paul Colossians 1, verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness, Paul adds something, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Beloved, that is Jesus, that is the son as your deliverer, as my deliverer. But here, verse 15, Hebrews 2, look at verse 15, and, this is part of the purpose statement, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We're subject to, the word subject to means guilty and deserving. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're just an innocent victim in this. We are culpable. 
fact, the same word is used by James in James 2 verse 10 when he says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of them all. Same word guilty, translated guilty there as being subject to. That's why from an unsaved standpoint, from a humanist standpoint, from an evolutionist standpoint, from a pagan standpoint, the 20th century English playwright Noel Coward, that's actually his last name, he wrote these famous words. He said, my past depresses me, my present bores me, and my future scares me to death. There is no hope. There is no help. And all men and women, even outside Christ, ultimately know this in their heart. Poor, wretched, blind, helpless, and hopeless. But in the Son, there is deliverance. Deliver and might deliver those set free, liberate, release, emancipate. This means that in Christ we are delivered from helplessness and hopelessness. And not just rescued from what we deserve by mercy, but rescued unto what we don't deserve, which is grace. We're delivered from the dark and desolate plains of foolish speculation into the sun-bathed land of true knowledge. You are delivered out of the miserable dungeon of bondage into the magnificent palace of God's emancipation and liberty. And what this means is we view death differently. John Chrysostom, the great 4th century expositor expository preacher, was describing a dynamic that just pierced him in the heart. He saw professing believers that were wailing and lamenting and demonstrating a hopelessness and a helplessness when facing death, which ought not be the case. This is what Chris Austin wrote. He said, when I behold the wailing in public places, the groanings over those who have departed this life, the howlings and all other unseemly behavior, and this is on the part of professing Christians, he says, I'm ashamed before the heathen and heretics who see it, and indeed before all who for this reason laugh us to scorn. And then he gives this prayer. He says, may God grant that you all depart from this life unwailed that we may depart from this life unwailed. That doesn't mean we like death. It doesn't mean we seek death. We can't still mourn over death, but we do not what? We do not mourn as those who have no hope. Beloved, for the believer, death is the gateway into God's presence. And this deliverance, Christ's role as your, deliver, as your deliverer is the smile of God reflected in the heart of the redeemed sinner. It's your shelter in the heart of the storm. It's the hiding place. His deliverance is the hiding place under his wings. It's the rainbow around the throne, which is the refuge from the thunderstorms of life that assail us. So, beloved, Jesus, the man, the son, is our brother. He is our deliverer. Finally, the last role is he is our sympathizer. So we need a savior who will save the sinful. We need a savior who can deliver the dying. And we need a savior who can help the hurting. And the hurting I'm saying here, I'm not talking about emotional hurt. I'm not talking about hurt from this or that. I'm talking about the hurt, the harm that comes from temptation. He is able to help you and me in our temptation. Now, as we've been going through Hebrews, we've already seen that the Old Covenant, and taking a step back, we know that in the 
great book as the author is describing the superiority of Christ as the better blood, the better mediator, the better covenant, the better testament, the better shaking of the earth. There's so many superiority elements that come through the book. One of them is the superiority of the new covenant as compared to the old covenant. And we already saw previously that the old covenant was mediated by angels to men. But the new covenant is mediated by the Son. And it is received by men. And in verses 16 through 18, the author opens up a main central theme of the entire sermonic letter. Namely, he is our high priest. He is our sympathetic high priest. Verse 16, for assuredly, he does not give help to angels. So besides the devil, we're now back to the holy angels. And beloved, even as we think of verses 5 through 10, even as we think of the author bringing out Psalm 8, after his own glory, after God's own glory, first and foremost, his purposes always were towards man, primarily not angels. We know, for example, that Paul tells us in Ephesians that even as Christ has been coronated at the right hand of the Father, we are right now seated with him in the heavenlies. That's something we enjoy on this side of eternity as new creatures in Christ Jesus. There's no mention ever of angels being seated with him in heaven. Angels serve him in heaven. No angel we know from what we've read so far. No angel is savior. The son alone is savior, nor is any angel saved. There's no salvation for demons. The son didn't come to redeem fallen angels, fallen spirit beings, fallen demons. He came to redeem you and I, men and women, humans. That's why he says, assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Uh, the word translated gives help to in both of those cases literally means to take hold by the hand in a firm grip, to draw someone to yourself in order to help them. For example, Mark 8, verse 23 the same word is used when it talks about Christ taking the blind man by the hand. He brought him out of the village. Or Luke chapter 14, verse 4, there was a certain man with dropsy that Jesus took hold of him and healed him. That's the same word. That's the literal picture of what the author says here is he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. To the descendant of Abraham. Now, to be sure, he's writing to a Jewish audience. That's why this is the book of Hebrews, to a Hellenistic group of Jewish believers. So there is a physical aspect, to be sure. As the nation of Israel, God is not done with the nation of Israel. But the broader context here, even as this surely Hebrew author, we don't know who the author is, surely he was a Hebrew in ethnicity, as the Hebrew author is writing to a group of Hebrews, the main context here is in the context of all of the spiritual children of God, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, slave and free. And he takes hold of them. And it's a theme that he picks up even later, the author does. In chapter 8, verse 9, 
The author writes, it's like the covenant which I made with the Father. This is God, the Father speaking. Like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day, talking about the nation of Israel, when I took them by the hand. Same original Greek word as gives help to. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And the overarching point here is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant sacrificial system. He is the fulfillment of the old covenant promise. And it is realized in Christ, in the singular descendant, in the singular seed of Jesus. And it spans out into the multiplicity of all of the spiritual seed. Jews and Gentiles, sons and daughters in the family of God, in the temple of God that Jesus is Building. It won't be a tiny group, like I said last week. It won't be a tiny group of elect huddling in some small corner of this vast, redeemed universe. No, it will be an innumerable, vast company as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky, even going all the way back to God's promise to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. And you and I are part of that. You and I are part of it. We continue verse 17 Therefore, so now he's going to apply it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. We might think of the great kenosis passage, the Christological statement that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The same theology, the same dynamic, the same pointing towards the centerpiece of the incarnation of God in human form. And by the way, you see the word brethren there again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Beloved, Jesus became dear friend. Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. That's the ultimate purpose for his glory. And in humility and trepidation, but based on the text, even for our glory. Again, going back to chapter 2, verse 7, and verse 9, verse 7 for us in particular. We continue verse 17. That, so that, another purpose statement, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Merciful and faithful. He was faithful because he never faltered. He is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, again, he gives us what we don't deserve, which is his grace. So that he might become a merciful and faithful, a sympathizing high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, the author is writing to a group of people who know a high priest when they see him. And this is a main theme of the entire letter, the high priesthood of Jesus. It's interesting, after Gospels, the Gospels, and the Acts of the Apostle, uh, the word priest only appears in singular form once in Romans 15 and 26 times here in Hebrews. And in fact, this book of Hebrews is the only New Testament book that expressly calls Jesus priest. John Calvin had this great quote. He said this about the book of Hebrews. He said, There is indeed no book in Holy Scripture which speaks so clearly to the priesthood of Christ, which so highly exalts the virtue and dignity of that only true sacrifice which he offered by his death, 
which so abundantly deals with the use of ceremonies as well as their abrogation, their ending, and in a word so fully explains that Christ is the end of the law, end quote. Or if we want to hear directly from God himself through the author of Hebrews, the kind of summary statement of the book of Hebrews, if we wanted one verse, we could look to chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point, Hebrews 8, 1, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. But here... Back in verse 17, chapter 2, he became a sympathetic high priest for a purpose. Look at what it says. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. To quench the wrath of God. If you think of the atonement, there's really two components to the atonement. There's the expiation, which is the removal of sin. And there is the propitiation, which is the quenching of God's wrath, of satisfying the just judgment and punishment of that sin. The propitiation of sin is the holy anger and fierce wrath of God being quenched, satisfies, and appeased. Jonathan Edwards in his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, described this kind of dynamic in the propitiation, which is, again, is a purpose of Jesus becoming your sympathetic high priest. Edwards said, paraphrase, that Jesus plunged into the bottomless gulf of the glowing flames of the lake of burning brimstone on your behalf. The black clouds of God's wrath burst forth and poured out their fury on him on the cross. The rough winds unleashed their fury on him like a whirlwind. God withdrew his hand from the floodgate, holding back the great waters of his wrath, which were amassed for you. And they rushed forth with inconceivable fury and came upon him at Calvary in your place." The bent bow of God's mighty wrath was released and the arrows of God's angry justice went flying into his flesh and were made drunk with his blood rather than yours. And paraphrase, quote, Beloved, that is Jesus Christ making propitiation to God on your behalf. And note one thing back at the beginning of verse 17. It had to be this way. It had to be. This is the language of necessity. In order to both satisfy his justice and to display publicly his mercy, it had to be done this way. Beloved, God is always consistent with his own character. You may have heard the question at times from someone. They say, well, did it really have to be done that way? Did God really have to be born as a baby, grow up as a man, die such a horrible death on the cross? And in some ways, that's really not a good question to ask. In some ways, that almost impugns the character of God. But the simple, straightforward answer is uh, yes, it had to be done that way. That's what the text said. It had to be done this way because the death of Christ is not only the best way to have the death of death, it is the only way. That's why he says it had to be done this way in the economy of God. And I love what Scott shared at our last men's Bible study. Sometimes you'll get the question, well, we, I don't want to put God in the box. And Scott's answer is brilliant. It's, well, we don't put God in a box, but we keep God in Scripture. We keep God in his written word. So, beloved, it had to be done this way. Finally, 
After we move from this great gospel summary in verses 11 through 17, which will see us through life, we come to the great gospel promise in verse 18, which will see you and I, you and me, through this week. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Beloved, since his suffering was infinitely special, so also his temptation was infinitely special. You may suffer temptations, I don't suffer. I may suffer temptations, you don't suffer. He suffered them all. All on your behalf, on my behalf. That's why the author writes in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a, again, high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Beloved, he delivers from the guilt of sin. He delivers from the penalty of sin, and he delivers as our sympathetic high priest from the bondage of sin. And in your day-to-day temptations and trials, Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses at every level. In my trials and temptation, he sympathizes with me in my weakness at every level. And I'll finish with a final quote from Augustine, just circling back from the great application of the beauty and glory and wonder of the meaning of the incarnation to us. Let's just finish with just great words describing the incarnation in its entirety with focusing on Jesus. This is what Augustine wrote. He said, the word of the Father by whom all time was created was made flesh and was born in time for us. He, without whose divine permission no day completes its course, wished to have one day set aside for his human birth. The maker of man became man, so that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast, so that he, the bread, might hunger, that he, the fountain, might thirst, that he, the light, might sleep, so that he, the way, might be wearied by the journey so that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, so that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, so that he, the discipline, might be scourged by whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, so that he, courage, might be weakened so that he, healer, might be wounded, that life might die. And then he finishes with these words. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us unworthy creatures, he who existed as a son of God before all ages, without a beginning, chose to become the son of man in these recent years. He did this, although he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil. And although we, who are the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit these benefits. End quote. That is amazing grace. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We again thank you for our salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for so great a savior you are, so great a son, so great a man, so great a Lord, so great a king. We praise you and thank you what this means for us. And Lord, we praise you even more for what this means for you. And we long to enter into your presence to see all these things fleshed out at their full measure forever and ever. And it is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. Amen.